You're listening to audio from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. If you'd like to learn more about Parkview, find more resources, or give to our ministry, please visit parkviewchurch.org. Good morning. My name is Charmaine Balmer, and I'm going to be reading to you out of the passage um, that you'll be hearing from this morning. It's Luke uh, chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and was, as was his custom, went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Thank you, Charmaine. I thank her also because she's tolerated me as her husband for 32 years this week, so that's not a small thing, I will tell you. Um, <clears throat> I may look at, make it look easy, but it's not easy, but anyway. I want to draw your attention to a picture here. Um, we have a very dedicated executive pastor. So he went to the Gospel Coalition Conference and he wore this shirt on behalf of Parkview. So how's that for commitment, right? He's wearing a shirt. He is a walking billboard for us. <laughs> he told me he was going to do that. I thought he was being sarcastic. And so I said, you should get one of those signs and spin it or whatever. And then, and then somebody told him he should wear a sandwich board. But he did that. And I think he made two of them so he could wear them two days in a row. But anyway, that's committed. He's going to another conference this week. He's going to wear it again. But anyway, be in prayer for our search. We have some needs there. It's nice for me to be able to be here for the whole services today. As you know, lately I've been preaching our first service, going across town to East Campus, coming back in time to preach here for second. So it's been kind of easy today just to preach the two here, but I'm so glad to be with you. Just delighted to thank you for all that you do to serve our youth and our children here at Parkview. Our Awana has gotten rolling now, and so many of you have volunteered and met the needs of the many kids that come. And this year, our youth ministry has launched better than ever, or at least better than it has in years, and we have a tremendous number of kids. And as you can imagine, when you put a bunch of middle school kids in one place, it needs a lot of help. So we're grateful for those who have been volunteering for that. But do pray for us as we do that as well. What a great opportunity. We just give praise to God for that. The Gospel of Luke now is, is ramping up. I hope you're noticing that as we get in deeper. And again, our theme verse is, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Thomas taught on the temptation of Jesus last week and that, that time between his baptism and the beginning of his formal ministry life. Certainly a unique launch into ministry to be encountered uh, by Satan and to be tempted like that. We see in that what kind of Savior Jesus is. He's full of the Spirit and led by the Spirit, so very important. He's obedient to the desires of the Father. 
He's a Savior who accepts the cross before the crown, and I hope you love that about Jesus. He accepts the cross before the crown, so central to the gospel message. He's a Savior who takes God at His word, and He's a Savior who is true and faithful. And He's the true and faithful Israel. Remember, Israel was to be God's nation, and they failed at it so badly. But Jesus fulfills that. He is the Son of God, the second Adam, through whom we can inherit eternal life and every spiritual blessing. Let me pray before we begin in today's message. Please join me. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the chance that we have to be together this morning. Lord, we just pray for East Campus as they're finishing up and be with Will and his message there. And God, we thank you for what's happening there. We just commit that to you. Lord, we come before you with these songs and and the spirit of of gratitude and admiration because you've been so good to us and you are the one true God. And we worship you. And Father, it is our desire now as we open your word to just have your spirit speak to our hearts and to guide us and lead us. And Lord, may we grow in our understanding of our Savior and in our understanding of what you would want for us. Father, we commit this time to you in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. I've entitled today's message, Home Field Disadvantage. In 1984, the Seattle Seahawks were so fond of their fans that they decided to consider the fans the 12th player on the field. By doing this, this further inspired their fans to be loud and enthusiastic, making it very hard for opposing teams to hear in their own huddles. I would argue that that factor probably uh, made a difference in last night's game at Kinnick when we had two uh, false starts by Michigan State because the crowd was so loud, probably had something to do with that, and it contributed to them having to punt and to Cooper returning that punt for 70 yards. Most teams play better with the home field or home court advantage. Generally speaking, it's considered to be an advantage to play at home. Today, Luke will take us to the synagogue in the hometown of Jesus. We will see a strong revelation of Jesus' identity We'll see a poor response to it. We'll see opposition rebuked by Jesus. And in the text that Charmaine just read for us, we'll see, and that and following, that mankind cannot define or control Jesus. It can only react to the reality of who he is and how he operates. In his Old Testament references, we will see that faith is honored and faith ultimately trumps heritage. The very people who assumed they would be served and blessed found themselves rebuked and infuriated. I can imagine that that day at the synagogue, it seemed like a relatively normal day at the synagogue. And in a day like that, a visit to the synagogue often included singing of some psalms. Often they were like Psalm 145 or 146 up through 150. There would have been the reciting of the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Reading from the Torah, there would have been reading from the prophets. And on this particular day, Jesus read from the prophet Isaiah. Then there would have been a a benediction, often the one from number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
Jesus read from Isaiah that day those prophetic words about redemption. He rolls up the scroll, hands it back, sits down, and then says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus drops a bomb there, right in their midst, and and he rolls up the scroll, hands it off, and sits down. And that act of sitting down is, is normal. That would have been normal in the temple. Then there would have been an exposition or a sermon, if you will. And Jesus makes this powerful revelation about himself. And this was the official sort of public revelation of who Jesus was. He drew the attention of those who saw him, but not all responded the same. Now, thus far, the the people might be encouraged by what Jesus read, right? Good news to the poor. Liberty to the captives. Sight for those who are blind. Liberty for the oppressed and the year of the Lord's favor. This is good news. That's, that's what they want to hear. And the people of Nazareth would have known these scriptures and they would have placed themselves in that list. They would have said that these words are for me. And, and understand that Luke casts a, a, a wide net when referencing the poor in his accounts. So this was not limited to the financially poor Sure, it included the poor, the laborers, the the beggars, even slaves, but also those who are marginalized in society. And you remember Matthew records Jesus as saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he's speaking of all those who are afflicted or who are downtrodden in some way or another. That would include actually children, uh, barren women or widows, sinners, tax collectors, Gentiles, demon-possessed people, and the physically lame or limited people. And right now, he's making this strong announcement of a great shift in direction. Again, a reversal. You'll hear me refer to that a lot as we go through the, the account of Luke. And no doubt, the people of Nazareth are stunned to hear that, that Jesus makes this proclamation about himself. Let's look at the responses and then examine what he said in more detail. Look at verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Now, it's kind of curious what just happened here. Because if you read this sentence by itself, it doesn't seem negative. Uh, so, you know, they speak well of him and they, they marvel of him at the gracious words and all that sort of thing. But there seems to be a quick and negative shift because we see in the gospel of, of Mark, the account, it says, is this not Joseph's son? And they took offense at him. It's this sort of moment where the home team fans uh, were happy and optimistic, but, but then they begin to see some things they don't like, and they're kind of back on their heels a little bit. Luke seems to be recording a rather sudden shift when they're saying, hey, wait a minute, is this Joe's boy? You know, it could be taken like, is this Joe's boy? He's amazing. Or, wait a minute, is this Joe's boy? Because, again, they, according to Mark, they took offense at him. And, and maybe they're thinking, listen, Nazareth is a nowhere town. Can Jesus really be from here? For, can, from the Messiah can be from here? No way. Look at verse 23. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. 
And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So it's very interesting here. Jesus seems to jump right to the heart of their issue. And he's listening, he's, he's explaining, listen, you, you have heard about what I have done or can do, and, and, and you obviously want this for yourself. And no doubt this phrase brings up questions in our mind if you've studied the text, because we'd say, okay, what, what had they heard, or, or when did these things take place? And Luke doesn't record them for us. Other Gospels give us the idea that Jesus has already done a lot of ministry, and, and certainly uh, Luke references that when it says, we have heard what you did at Capernaum. So it obviously has happened before. But he's saying, listen, you'll want more proof since I'm from here. But then he says, makes these strange references. Remember Elijah, all those in need and the drought and famine? And he only helped the, the widow. And remember Elisha and, and all the, the lepers in Israel, but only Naaman. And this response fills them with wrath to the point where they want to push him down a cliff. Why? What is it about those references that upset them so? Again, if you want to put it in a different context, this seems like that moment when the home team fans are now booing. <laughs> they're throwing stuff onto the field or onto the court. They're, they're, they're calling the coach unpleasant names. We've seen these scenarios. You know, hero if it works and zero if it doesn't, right? And the home field then can be a disadvantage because it's turned on you. And think about how much worse this is for Jesus. This is not upset fans over a loss or a bad call. This, these are up fan, upset fans that want to kill the purpose of pushing him down a cliff was so, so that he could be down there and they would throw stones at him and kill him. They want to execute him. All because of his words for his own hometown people, they want to kill him. We all know that words, words are a little bit dangerous in how we use them. The story is told of a 106-year-old cowboy in Texas who passed away. He was asked on his last birthday before he died what his secret to longevity was. And he said that over the past 50 years, he sprinkled a little bit of gunpowder on his cereal each morning. When he died, he left behind eight children, 21 grandchildren, 32 great-grandchildren, and a 15-foot hole in the crematorium. I think we can all agree that you're wondering how I was going to apply that, right? Uh, we can, we can agree that words can be explosive. And, and the words Jesus shares here are explosive, but it, it's not because they were poorly chosen or foolish. We know that, that when we say something foolish or, or, or haven't thought it through, it can be explosive. But the words of Jesus were true and appropriate, but they weren't well received. Why? Let's begin. We'll start with the obvious reasons for the tension, and we'll examine it a little closer as we go. We'll see more. Jesus is reading and, and quoting from the book of Isaiah, and he quotes a little bit from 50, Isaiah 58, but also 61. And I want you to look at 61, see the similarities and the difference between what he actually read. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn. So what Jesus said here at the beginning kind of riled them up. Remember, they start saying, isn't this Joe's boy? And, and it's interesting what he includes from verse 2. He includes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but leaves out, and the day of vengeance of our God. Understand that there was a, a, a strong desire for vengeance from the people of Israel. They were tired of being oppressed, and they wanted their next leader, their ruler, to come, to come and take over and to, to, to have vengeance on those who had, who had treated them so poorly. So this would have gotten their attention because he sits down, he reads the words, and he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, I'm the one to do these things, but it also seems to be communicating that the day of vengeance was still to come later. So maybe they don't want to hear this. They don't want to hear that there's more waiting. Was this enough to infuriate them? Probably not. But notice it intensifies after he says more. So, so why did things go away the, the way they did? And, and, and the text might suggest that they, they were fond of Jesus' words until he spun them around and applied them to, to them in a, in a way that they didn't like. Now I'll suggest to you today, it might help us to, to stop and consider how you might have responded if you were from Nazareth and you have a hometown boy coming and he's emerging as a leader. He's emerging as the redeemer and a miracle worker. Okay, so put yourself in that position for a minute. You've known about Jesus for years. You've noticed he's different. He's honest. He's kind. He's insightful. He never loses it. He's always helpful. He's a great tree climber. He'll go climb up the olive tree and get the ones from the top for you if you need them. He's extraordinary. No one can say anything bad about him. Then you hear about amazing things that he's done, how he's been healing the sick, he's been giving sight to the blind, he's, and everybody's talking about him, he's casting out demons. And he's back in town now. Wouldn't you have great expectations for him? If it were you? If he's done these great things for others, then certainly he's going to do great things for me and for us. We're hometown people. It's only logical he would take care of his own. So, of course, you drop everything that day and go hear him in the synagogue, and you would have anyway. You would have gone to the synagogue. You're a good Jew, right? Everybody else from the town comes as well. He's going to meet our needs today. He's going to take care of us today. And he reads this, those famous passages from Isaiah, and he claims he's the one. And then he claims uh, that that he knows that we want us to do good, good want him to do good things for us. And, and yeah, we do right? But then he seems to turn on us and he rebukes us. Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own town. Then he references these just sections from, from the ministry of Elijah and, and Elisha. Where is he going with this? Why, why is he doing this? Let's look a little closer and, at what he's saying to them. Look at verse 25. But in truth, I tell you that there were many widows in Israel in the day of Elijah. And the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. He's saying, listen, in Elijah's time, there were, there were many widows in Israel. Three and a half year famine, of course. There were, there were widows in Israel. 
But he goes on to say, Elijah wasn't sent to them. Only a widow in another place. Verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Many lepers, great need, where? In Israel. None of them were cleansed, only a Syrian named Naaman. It's at this point wrath. They want to push him off a cliff. They want to kill him. Do we see why? Jesus seems to be drawing a parallel between himself and two Old Testament prophets, Old Testament heroes, on occasions where they did not come to the rescue of their own people. Again, many, many widows, great famine in Israel, Jews, God's Hebrew people, and God sends Elijah to a Gentile widow in Sidon. Many lepers in Israel, Jewish, Hebrew lepers. God only has Elisha heal a Gentile man from Syria. Again, the Jews looked down on Gentiles. They were racist. And here, Jesus seems to suggest that the faith of the Gentiles is more important than Jewish heritage. Chen writes this. She says, Common to Elijah and Elisha's stories was their mission to those despised by reason of gender, woman, marital status, widow, Gentile origins, Sidonian or Syrian, and physical deformity, leper. It was not as though Elijah and Elisha did not help their fellow Israelites, but Jesus emphasized that even with the needy among Israel, God chose to send his prophets to those of even lower status, a Gentile widow and a Gentile leper. Indeed, God's grace extends beyond the boundaries of Israel, a lesson so difficult for Jesus' compatriots to learn. So just like Elijah and Elisha, Jesus is saying, I I'm not going to do healings and signs and wonders here. I'm not going to prove myself to you by healing all of you and showing you great signs and wonders. Now we can see why they'd be angry, right? You'll do great things for others, but you won't do, a, do it for us who have known you. He realized that Jesus may have been looking out to people he, he knew very well. He may have been looking to an elderly woman who, who was there when, when Mary would drop him off with her when she had to go to the market, and he's saying these things to those people. But I think there's even more to what Jesus is communicating, but it requires a closer look at those two Old Testament passages. Remember the story of Elijah and the widow in Zarephath. Let me read it to you from 1 Kings 17. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there, there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, And bring a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I'm gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make a little, a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus the Lord, your, the God of Israel, 
And thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. What about Elisha and Naaman? You have a, a army of his, the army commander of Syria advised by his wife's Hebrew servant, young servant, go to the king of Israel with a letter. And, and, and he brought a letter from his king. And the king freaked out when he got it. And Elisha said, send him to me. In 2 Kings 5, we read this. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots. And he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all of the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage, and his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word that has been spoken by the prophet to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Could there be an additional reason why Jesus referenced those two accounts? Notice with me that in both cases, they had to believe and obey before they saw God's miraculous power. The widow had to make a tough decision, feed herself and her child or obey and risk it. Naaman had to believe enough to go down and dip himself into that water seven times. You know, I need to be honest with this and say, yeah, Jesus is extending a strong rebuke against the people of Nazareth. He's hitting them hard. And we can ask, was it so out of the realm of reason for Jesus' hometown people to have these certain assumptions and expectations? I don't know. I don't think so. But the fact was, Jesus knew that the people of Nazareth wanted proof before belief. The rejection of him would cause them to miss out like Israel did. So Jesus rebukes them. And if you go on and read in the chapter, and I encourage you to do that, you notice that he goes to the home of Peter's mother-in-law, and she has a fever. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes the fever, and the fever leaves her. And, and, and a beautiful response by her, she just serves them. And, and Jesus encounters demons, and he rebukes those demons, and they submit, and, and the people are freed of them. But he's giving a hard rebuke to his own people. And, and they're disgusted by this, so much so that they're wanting to kill him and leaving upset. I love what Charles Swindoll writes. He says, when people come to Jesus wanting to believe, he gave them signs to validate their decision. But catch this. When people came to Jesus looking for a reason to reject him, 
He gave them all he hoped to find, or they hoped to find. Isn't that great? It's a matter of the heart. And sadly, we don't know of Jesus ever going back to Nazareth. Well, let me ask you for a minute. Do you and I do the same? Perhaps we, like the people of Nazareth, are, are foolish enough to come up with reasons to question Jesus, or, or we, we want to negotiate, or, or we even want to deny His deity. Or, or we simply want to believe that we know better and we know what He should do. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. He doesn't have to do anything the way we want Him to do it. Even some of the ones who watched him perform these miracles and teach, they found reasons not to believe in him and follow him and even turn on him. You see, mankind cannot define or control Jesus. It can only react to the reality of who he is and how he operates. We don't get to define him. And rejection of Jesus as he truly is defines the ultimate mistake we can make in life. He is not whom we personally define him to be. Let me confess to you here. I've struggled with God over this over the years. And I'd love to say it was way back in my pre-faith days or my young faith days. No, I've struggled with this over my lifetime. I've had my moments where I, I act like a angry home team fan. Because I've come to God with my suggestions and, and my requests and my ideas, even my demands. And I come to God with my expectations and my presuppositions. And then, then I've gotten frustrated when He chooses to act according to His will and not mine. I'm saying things like, Lord, this makes no sense. Why wouldn't you do this? Or sometimes the other way, why would you allow this? I'm your child. I need you to. And then fill in the blank. Or then, or the comparisons. You ever done this? You, you did it for them. You won't do it for me? Can you relate, or are you just going to hang me out to dry? Hear me now. Ultimately, in those moments, we are essentially protesting against the seemingly counterintuitive, illogical actions of God. Right? In those moments, we're essentially protesting against the seemingly counterintuitive, illogical actions of God. But that then creates a bigger problem for us. If we protest the counterintuitive ways of God, we must protest all of them. We can't just pick and choose. If, if God is not allowed to do that which in my own estimation does not make sense, then guess what? I just ruled out the cross and the resurrection. If God is not allowed to do that which is illogical or, or counterintuitive to us, then He's not allowed to go to the cross 
or rise again from the grave. I want you to think about this. If the, if the cross and, and the tomb and the empty tomb would have been logical to the people of that time, then Jesus would have emerged from his tomb to a massive crowd celebrating like the home team just won. But he didn't, did he? Because the cross in its very nature makes no sense. What? God would take on flesh to die in my place, to take God's wrath upon himself for me? It's counterintuitive. So let me just ask you, what are your assumptions and ideas about Jesus? If you had been a member of Jesus' hometown, would he have passed you by because of your prideful assumption of what he must do for you? At some point, we have to back up and say, we're talking about God here, God in flesh, God incarnate, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior, the King of kings. And he will do that which is according to the Father's will, not according to yours. I hope you know him. We're going to transition into a time of communion now, and if you didn't pick up a a cup on the way in, if you want to just slip your hand in the air, if you'd like to participate, we'll get one of those to you. Just keep it up in the air until we get to you. I've said it before, it's a strong conviction of mine that we must not let the regularity of our time at the Lord's Supper take away from its significance. We must not merely go through the motions or allow it to become in some way mundane. We are remembering our desperate need, our condition apart from Christ, our sinful status, condemned in sin and separated from God. But we're also remembering our hope in Christ. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sometime during the next song, take time to consider your sins and confess them before the Lord. And then take part in communion. We're remembering Christ and what he's done. We're remembering that our sins caused him to have to go to the cross. And to do that, he had to take on flesh. And as we take the bread, we're remembering the body of Christ. And as we drink of the cup, we're remembering the poured out blood of Christ on the cross. So without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no forgiveness of sins. And we're to remember that as we do this, we're to do this in remembrance of Jesus. So remember him. Take time to examine your heart. And remember what Jesus said about the bread and the cup. He said, of the bread, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And of the cup, he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Can I lead us in prayer? And then we'll sing a song and you can partake when you're ready. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise 
that you are a God who doesn't have to explain himself to us. That you are a God whose ways are higher than we can imagine. Your understanding is so great. And Father, we thank you for sending your son to take on flesh so that he could die in our place. That he can hang on the cross and he can bleed on our behalf to purchase our redemption. To take the wrath you had for us and put it upon himself. Lord, we're humbled by that and we're grateful. And we just say thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you would do that. Lord, we remember you in this time. In your name we pray. Amen.